It is well. You know, that would be a prayer that we would have for each and every one of us when we're walking through some of the most challenging, sometimes even the most unthinkable tragedies in our lives. And we ask ourselves, how can I, like the author of that song, who had gone through so much loss, rest in our heart and say, it is well with my soul, even in the midst of that. Well, I'm thankful for the worship team that they bring us to these kind of truths because it's that truth and that being a result of what we're going to talk about today as we look at the truths of God's Word and the results that come when we choose to respond to God and what He has said. What a beautiful thing. All right. Today I want to start with a veiled age verification, okay? So here's a quiz. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, but let me ask you. How many of you can identify Wimpy Wellington? Wimpy Wellington? Anybody? Yeah, I got a couple of hands out there. Does this ring a bell? I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Wimpy loved his hamburgers so much. He loved them so much he was willing to go into debt for them every day. I have to imagine that debt would have built up every pretty darn quickly. And, you know, I don't ever remember Tuesday showing up for Wimpy either. So I don't know that he ever even paid on his debt. So eventually it got to a point he could have never repaid. How about debt on a larger scale? Now, I don't want to get into politics here. But I am going to bring up our national debt. Do you realize the last time that our, nas- that our nation was debt-free was the year 1835? Today, our nation's debt stands at over $34 trillion. Now, my purpose in bringing this up is not to debate fiscal policies, but rather to visualize a debt that is greater than any one of us could ever imagine paying off. And I don't want us to get focused just on that monetary number because there is a far greater problem. There's a far greater debt burden that each one of us deserves to carry, but also a far greater joy, a far greater joy that we're going to find in the answers coming from God's Word today. Now, this year we've chosen to focus our annual theme on building on our heritage, And as we seek to build upon the 60-year heritage of Faith Church to grow our church on a solid foundation, we're spending this year walking through an exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And so far, we've looked at verses 1 and 2 to see the beauty of what it means to say, you are saints. And then last week, Pastor David helped us to see the hope of knowing that God has brought us into his family. You are adopted. What a glorious story of God's love for us, right? And this is just the beginning of our series as we remember our identity as one in Christ. And today we're going to get right to it. If you will, join me by opening up the book of Ephesians. I'd like us to read together right from the beginning of the book up to our primary verse for today. If you're using the Bibles that are in the chairs in front of you, you're going to look on page 150 in the back section of the Bible. But if you will, join me. This is the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, starting right from the beginning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, 
who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, if you're listening closely, and I know that you all do, you might have asked what happened to the concepts between saints and adopted. Well, sometimes our preaching schedule does this so that we have the ability for Pastor Viers and Pastor Oaken to be able to travel and bring a message across all three campuses. And what that means for us here at Faith North is sometimes we're going to mix up the order of the verses as we go through them. We will always do that thoughtfully and consciously so as not to create um, problems in how we might understand them. And we think that here in Ephesians, we're able to do that. And so, for example, we're going to get to verse 3 next week and then verses 4 through 6 the week after that. But today, we're parking on Ephesians 1-7 and specifically the second half of Ephesians 1-7 so that we might remember that in Christ, part of our identity is that you are forgiven. We started out today talking about debt. We're going to come back around to talking about debt again, talking about a debt that is so large, it would be like asking each and every one of you to pay the $34 trillion debt. We're not talking as a church congregation. We're talking $34 trillion here, $34 trillion here, $34 trillion here, $34 trillion here. That's the kind of debt that we are talking about. And I think I can speak for all of us when I say, that would be more than I can do. I'm not capable of that. So when God says, in Him, we have the forgiveness of our trespasses, our debts, according to the riches of His grace... Well, I think that's worth slowing down a little bit. I think that's worth stopping to understand what forgiveness means and to find from our passage today three characteristics of God's forgiveness. And I believe that by the time that we are finished, we will see that these three characteristics require a response, a response from each and every one of us who is here today. Because within these characteristics, we're going to find truths. We're going to find truths about ourselves. We're going to find truth about God. And then we're going to find truths that show us that we must honestly consider that we must respond to what God is showing us today. So the first characteristic we have to acknowledge about forgiveness. Forgiveness is universally needed. Forgiveness is the term we use to indicate the pardon for a fault, the pardon for an offense. It also means to excuse from the payment of a debt which is owed, rightly owed. 
And so therefore, to need forgiveness, there has to be something to be forgiven, something that has already created a debt. And for there to be a debt owed, there has to be something that caused, created that debt, something that was taken, an offense that has been given, a transgression against someone. And that transgression, that transgression is our sin. And that someone is our holy God in all of his holiness. And in God's perfect justice, he can't just look at it and brush it away. He can't just look in the other direction. For where there is sin, there must be a response. Where there is sin, there is a need, a need for forgiveness. Now, I think we can all agree about where sin began. Adam and Eve in the garden had everything that they needed, yet they chose to believe that they deserved something more, the one thing that God had warned them not to eat, and yet they ate, and sin entered into the world. Now, if you're here today and you're saying to yourself, yeah, I know, but I'm not so sure what I believe about those early narratives in the Bible, aren't they just stories? Aren't they more like fairy tales? Well, as a pastor, I would love to have the opportunity to sit down with you and talk about the questions you may have about that. Because how we look at even the book of Genesis and understand it and interpret it will impact how we interpret everything throughout God's Word, how we understand the rest. And so I believe that it is literally. So they ate, and thus the sin entered into the world. And so we have to ask ourselves then, what does that mean for me? Well, through Adam... All have sinned. The first characteristic of God's forgiveness is telling me a truth about me. And it's telling you a truth about you. We don't get to look next to us and say, well, that's about my wife. That's about my son or daughter. That's about somebody else that I know. This is a truth about me. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, not just some, but all men, because all have sinned. Now, we could go deep into the theology of what this means, and there are several, in, in, there are several interpretations to help describe how this happens, that because Adam sinned, you and I are sinners at birth, even before the fir- our first breath is taken in this world. But let me try to simplify rather than expounding on all of those positions. What we would teach here is that Adam's sin, based on him being a representative for all of mankind, his sin is imputed. That means that it is inferred upon each of us who are united to Adam because he is the representative of all humanity. And thus, Adam's sin is our sin. Adam's guilt is is our guilt. And we each come into this world with a sin nature, and we come into this world with a debt that is already owed. Now, if you find that to be unfair, and you don't want to accept the truth that Adam's sin is imputed upon us, I'm going to ask that you would wait and listen as we go through point two. 
Because if I want to reject that truth, that means I have to also reject God's truth in the other direction. And so I would ask you to wait on making that something solid within our heart. But I will give you a taste of hope right here at the beginning, because in 1 Corinthians it says, For is in Adam all die, so also in Christ all, not some, all will be made alive. So to understand forgiveness, we must start with understanding that forgiveness is universally needed because sin is universal. And though God cannot sin and all of God's creation is good, we must acknowledge that in the goodness of God's creation, a part of being created in the image of God allowed for mankind to have a will independent of God in the freedom to make choice to make a choice to worship and obey God or the freedom to choose to seek our own authority in our lives. You see, God created mankind without sin, and yet sin entered through his creation, through Satan and through Adam. Now, some believe that since God is all-powerful, God is then to blame for sin, but this is false. The origin of sin came through the hearts of Satan and in men. And though this is not something that we can simply explain, we also cannot make God the responsible party here. But thankfully, not only is God not responsible, God was not surprised. God was not surprised by our sin because as we will see, God's plan for his glory was already written to address the issue of sin even before the time of creation, the sin that's in all of us, he had a plan for because he knew that none are innocent. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, described it this way. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless There's none who does good. There is not even one. Now, let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes we want to just stick with that word innocence because we might say, well, yeah, I know I'm not innocent, but I'm not that bad. But the Bible teaches something different. The Bible teaches what we would call the total depravity of man to describe the pollution and the corruption of sin that is passed down from Adam. And what this means is that left to ourselves, our sin infects every part of us such that we are completely incapable of living a life that's pleasing to God. None is righteous. No, not one. Left to ourselves, we might just try to redefine sin in our favor so that we don't look so bad. But sin must be understood through a God-centered viewpoint. John MacArthur teaches it this way. He says, at its core, sin is a violation of the creator-creation relationship. Man exists only because God made him, and man is in every sense obligated to serve his creator. Sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy for himself apart from the Creator. The most all-encompassing view of sin's mainspring, therefore, is the demand for autonomy. 
We often use the phrase in our children's ministry that sin is anything that we think, say, or do that is not pleasing to God. And to bring a deeper understanding for all of us, we need to also then answer the question, okay, what is it that's not pleasing to God? Well, that's anything where we're seeking to choose ourselves. Anything where we're seeking to choose ourselves rather than choosing to submit to his authority. Some examples. If you say something to me that that I don't like, and I lash out at you out of anger, I'm choosing to be disobedient to God. If my wife doesn't take care of me and my home in the way that I want her to, and so I choose to manipulate and control things at home so that I get my way, I get what I want, I'm choosing to disobey God's command to love my wife as he would call me to. If your parents asked you to be home at midnight and you said, yeah, I'll be home at 3. Or let's say I'm even home at 12.30. Well, you're choosing not to honor your parents. You're choosing that you know best and you're ready to be your own authority. Can you begin to see here with these examples how all sin ultimately comes back to us choosing to be our own authority, none of us are, incident, are innocent, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Tim Keller would teach, it, teach that this literally says that we lack the glory of God because we fail to give any glory to God because of the nature of our sin against our glorious God. And sin has its consequences because of that. The consequences of our sin ring loudly throughout the biblical narrative. Because of their sin, God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. Now, note, this was not actually the penalty for their sin. That penalty would be death. But the consequence was that God's perfect creation and provision in the garden could no longer be available to them. In God's goodness, he removed their access to the tree of life so that they would not live an eternity in sin. And in God's goodness, he removed that. And so because of our sin, there is a broken relationship with God. Now, there's much more to this than just what we find in Genesis. There are other examples to include in 1 Samuel 15, when King Saul, after being told by God to completely utterly destroy the Amalekites, he comes home from the battle and he allowed the king to live. And he took some of the best of their livestock for himself. He knew better. And because of this, God removed his spirit from Saul. The book of Isaiah shows over and over again the broken relationship between the nation of Israel and God how they chased after idolatry, how the people of Israel chased after false gods instead of worshiping the one true God. And the broken relationship resulted in the exile of the nation. What about our lives? When we choose that we can live in our own way, when we say, I don't need God for this, I know better than God Regarding that, our relationship with God is broken as well. And Romans 6.23 would tell us the wages of sin 
is death. The consequence of our sin is our separation from God, even in this world. When we are each born into this world, we rejoice for new life, but we also have to acknowledge that in the beauty of that new life, there's a truth about an old and corrupted self that's going to reveal itself in its sinful, self-centered nature over and over again without Christ. Our condition at that time is not one of life and happiness. Ephesians 2.1 describes it more accurately when it says, and you were dead in your trespasses. And so the consequence is a broken relationship with God and also broken relationships with people. Through our, though our sin is first and foremost against a holy God, The consequence of our sin can spill over on others in our lives, including those who we care about most. In the garden, God said to the woman that she would have increased pain in childbirth and there would be tension even between she and her husband. Already at that point, God's perfect design for marriage had been broken. And then it carried over into family and society. Cain killed his brother Abel out of jealousy. Lamech killed a young boy because he had struck him. And it carries through to today as well. Think about it. A husband who chooses to stay up night looking at pornography, even if no one catches him, he's already broken the relationship in his marriage through his adulterous heart. A wife who sinfully worries about finances and seeks to control the spending and will not follow or even ask her husband to lead. Her relationship with her husband is broken. A teenage girl complains and is hurt because she lashes out because her lifelong friend talked to another behind her back to make those people laugh. She gossiped about her another broken relationship. So is this brokenness inevitable? The answer to that is yes, when we acknowledge the sin nature and our total depravity. Because it brings broken relationships with God, it brings broken relationships with people, and it also brings broken relationships with creation. Just look around you folks. Life's hard, right? Because of the fall, creation now works against man to frustrate his efforts. Then to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread." Till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We're often looking at this world and asking ourselves, why is life so hard? Harold Kushner wrote a book called, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it became a bestseller, selling millions of copies. But there's a problem, folks. His book is wrong. His book is wrong because he's assuming something. He's got it at his basic understanding, a lie. 
None are good. No, not one. And sin has a cost. Because of the brokenness of our relationships with God, others, and creation, without Christ, we live a life of brokenness, and ultimately we will pay for the cost for our sin, for the wages of sin is death, the debt that we all owe. And only through death can our debt be paid. Now, before we move on to the next of our characteristics of God's forgiveness, I want to ask a question. Have you acknowledged the sin in you? Have you, do you recognize that forgiveness is universally needed? And if you answer these questions with anything other than yes and yes, I would pray that you would allow the truths that we've covered so far to rest upon your heart. Well, we also unpack two more beautiful truths about God's forgiveness so that you can consider what your response may be. If you answer these questions with anything other than yes and yes, I would also offer that any of our pastors, even any of our biblical counselors, would want to sit down with you to be able to answer and walk through the questions that you have and look for the answers in God's Word, because I believe that those answers will also draw us right back to these same beautiful characteristics of God's forgiveness, such that we would find that forgiveness has exclusively one source. Let's start again with that financial debt illustration. Say that I owe you $200. With some work, that's certainly an amount that I should be able to pay you back in time, right? There might also be other ways that my debt to you might be satisfied. My wife might turn around and pay that debt for me. Some of, someone else might come in and pay that debt for me. But let's look a little bigger than $200, okay? How about 200000 How about 200000 for the mortgage of a house? So I have a home, but then it burns down. And I forgot to get any, any housing or any home insurance on it. Do I still owe $200,000? Yes. Yes, I do. A little tougher to pay off? Absolutely. Still possible? Okay. So let's think bigger. What if I'm personally responsible for the $34 trillion of our national debt? How could I ever satisfy that? The wages of sin is death. That's a debt that looks just like, in fact, it looks even greater than $34 trillion. And so there's only one way that that can be satisfied completely, and that's through forgiveness. $200? I could probably forgive that. $200,000? I might struggle in that one a little bit more, right? But maybe a multi-billion dollar bank, they might be able to, though I doubt that they would. A debt equivalent to $34 trillion? There's no one on this earth that could ever cover that. No one on this earth who could forgive that. The wages for my sin, there is only one. There's only one who's able to forgive my debt because only God the Father can forgive. Because of God's sovereignty and his authority over all creation, including I'm a part of his creation, you're a part of his creation, he's the only one who can grant us forgiveness for the debt that we owe. 
And we can sing praises to God because throughout His Word, it reveals the heart of our God in, in this area. Look at what it says in Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of His possession? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights in unchanging love. What a beautiful statement. He delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread on our iniquities, or he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Into the depths of the sea is another phrase that they used in the Old Testament, very much like when we say, as far as the east is from the west. Think about it. In that time, they had no idea how deep the sea was. To them, it was infinite. And that's something that tells us about God because there is no other like God who is able to forgive sins. He's the creator, he's sovereign, he's good and just, and only he is able to forgive. Psalm 130 sings out, but there is forgiveness with you, God, that you may be feared. But you know, we also have to acknowledge that knowing these things does not always necessarily bring us into God's court, specifically seeking the forgiveness that we need. Think about it. With all the writings of the law and the prophets in their hands, the most studied leaders of the time, the the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the law in Israel, well, they all also agreed that forgiveness was needed, and they even agreed who could forgive sins. But frequently we read in the Gospels that their religious leaders would keep thinking to themselves or even saying out loud, who can forgive sins? They'd even call Jesus a blasphemer. For example, in Matthew 9, when Jesus declared to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. They did not believe. Even though they knew God was the only one who could forgive, they did not believe. And that's why Jesus took the next step to prove that he had the power and the authority to do what he has said. Because Jesus instead told the man, get up and walk. So that they could see that he was the son of God. Jesus declared that the sin has been forgiven by healing this man. But this man's healing alone does not in itself declare the good news to you and I. His healing and forgiveness were a part of the overall revelation of who Jesus is so that we might come to believe, so that we could seek him for the forgiveness of our sins as well. But my debt, well, it's more like $34 trillion. How could one man pay my debt, the debt of all mankind? Well, the answer, only because He's Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God, fully God in every way, and Jesus is the Son of Man, fully human in every way. Jesus is the answer that we need. In 2 Corinthians, it teaches, He, God, made Him the Son who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Think back to this statement of Adam's sin being imputed upon all of us. You know, I don't like it either because it means that I'm guilty right from the beginning and left alone. I have no answer to it but God. But God, being rich in his mercy, he made a way. 
He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. The Son of God is the only one capable of carrying the burden of sin for each and every one of us. And he did so for all at the same time. And the Son of Man is the only one capable of dying a death that could satisfy the goodness and the justice of the Father so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the news we've been waiting for. Because in the Father's forgiveness, the imputed nature that we receive from Adam and we reveal daily in our sinful hearts, God has now covered that over with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. You see, that's why we can't look at the imputed sin nature of Adam and go, I don't like that, I'm not going to believe that. Because to reject that means I have to also reject the imputed righteousness of Christ. I would not be able to receive the forgiveness. And Isaiah's many beautiful messianic promises about Jesus Christ display the picture that we need to see as he says in the first chapter, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Our sin, creating the universal need for forgiveness, pollutes and corrupts our very being before a holy God. Our sin creates the separation that keeps us from him. Yet through the blood of Christ, our sin is covered over and cast away that we might be presented as spotless and pure before our God. Because forgiveness has exclusively one source. And this truth was preached by the apostles when they say, there is, no sal- there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given amongst men by which we must be saved. And this was an echo of Jesus' teaching himself when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Can you see how in this short passage we've found these beautiful truths that forgiveness is universally needed? And I ask again, do you believe it's true? Do you recognize your need for forgiveness? Because forgiveness has exclusively one source. Do you believe that to be true as well? Because when we do, we also then need to choose to respond to him because the third characteristic, forgiveness is freely offered. Take a look at our verse again for today. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We often speak of grace, but do we truly give thanks for the grace of God? Do we really see the enormity of what it's taken for God to pour out his grace upon his people? I'm thankful for how this passage has flowed and laid out because there's such an easy mistake that could be made if we started at the wrong end. If we started with grace, we might see it as too small. We have to start with forgiveness Because we have to begin by acknowledging that there's a need to be forgiven in the first place. And only when we see the true magnitude of our sin, that yes, wages of murder is death. The wages of adultery is death. The wages of lying 
and selfishness, death, the wages of gossip, or maybe sins that we might even look at to be acceptable, the wages of sin, still death. Before our holy God, each one of us holds a $34 trillion debt. And that's the picture we need to see in order to properly see the riches of his grace, his grace, abundant and undeserved. Do you believe that God's grace is enough to pay the debt that you owe? Do you believe that God's grace is enough to forget all that you have done? In Romans 5, it says the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His grace, abundant and undeserved. Think of it. First, he pays your $34 trillion, And he's still got enough to pay your $34 trillion and your $34 trillion and your $34 trillion and going on and on and on for all of mankind. Because his grace is abundant but also undeserved. Where our transgression increased, our sin increased. Our debt for ourselves still remained unpayable. And you and I can bring nothing before the Lord even to make a first payment about it. The wages of sin is death. And without Christ, that death is the eternal death, eternal punishment. We have to know that so we understand we have to go to him. Because even in my own death, think about it, my death must be eternal. In other words, I will never achieve a state, even in death, where it's been enough to fully satisfy God. Now, I know what you're saying. We get it, Rod. Wages of sin is death. You're on point three now. How about some more good news, right? It's in his word. That's the beauty of it. So let's just finish the statement. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift, the abundant and undeserved grace available in Christ Jesus our Savior. And though my death, though my death may not be able to pay that, we can know that his grace is enough. First, I do want to ask that as we go through this and we see the beauty of God's grace, can we know that God is satisfied? The answer is yes. And the beauty of that comes when we celebrate Easter, when we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior every day, we can look at the comparison. My debt would result in an eternal death and punishment. Christ's death satisfied the Father. And three days later, the tomb was empty. God the Father raised him from the dead because he was satisfied, because his grace is sufficient. And that's why I can rejoice in God's amazing grace. And then with the joy of the Lord in our hearts, we must each know that we have to choose to respond because the offer of God's grace requires a response. And so if you're here today and you've never responded to God's offer of grace, or if you're just not sure, have I really been forgiven? Please know this does require a response. 
and we all respond in one of two ways. It might look like maybe you believe you're good enough. Maybe I can just work this off one thing at a time in my life, and eventually God will forgive me. Maybe I think also that I'm just too far gone. Nothing that could be done would ever forgive all that I have done. But in both of those, they're really the same response because ultimately they bring no hope. They bring no hope because they're without God's grace. But we do have a response that we can make. We can choose to acknowledge our own sin, to repent of it, to choose to believe what God has said about His grace, that it is enough. And then having received His grace, we can begin to live and grow in ways that will please the Lord. God never wanted this to be hard. And that's why he spells out his response so simply. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is assured, folks. That's the beauty of it. The riches of his grace poured out freely on all who would call on the name of Jesus. Only God can forgive sins and only through Jesus Christ can the Father be satisfied. And that's why he tells us in 1 John, if we confess with our, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are forgiven. And then when that's true, there's still one more response that comes from the beauty of these characteristics to God's forgiveness. The receipt of grace requires us to do the same. For those who have been forgiven much, God calls us to be willing to forgive as well. In Matthew 18, Jesus teaches a parable about the kingdom of heaven, saying that it's like a king who wished to settle his account with his slaves. And for one slave who owed a debt far beyond his ability to pay, when he pleaded with his Lord, the king forgave the debt. But when that same servant then went and was unwilling to forgive another slave who owed him an infinitely smaller debt, when his Lord found out about it, he turned him over to the torturers until he could repay all that he owed. And Jesus finished this teaching, saying, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. When I have been given, when I have been forgiven beyond my measure, how can I choose not to forgive another? In Christ we've received grace. Through Christ we have the power to extend grace to others. My friends, our message today has been at the core of the gospel. There is no other message more important that we need to hear. There is no more important decision than every one of us needs to make. And there's no more significant impact that any decision could have on your life. Because when we respond to God's grace and confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive our relationship with God is no longer broken. 
when we respond to God's grace by choosing to ask forgiveness of others and to extend grace and forgiveness to those around us, our relationships with people no longer have to be broken. And when we trust in Christ for the free gift of grace that is eternal life with Christ Jesus, we can trust in Christ and know that our relationship with creation will also one day be restored. And so as we remember our identity as one in Christ, praise the Lord, we can each know you are forgiven. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, we come to you today so thankful for your word and the beauty of all that you've given us. Lord, we thank you that your grace is abundant and, Lord, available to all. Lord, we all carry a debt before you that is far greater than we can ever imagine or ever repay. And, Lord, I praise you for so many that you have already extended that grace and forgiveness and they have received that to be able to say, I am forgiven. Lord, I pray if there are any here today who have not yet received that grace. Lord, I know your hand is open and forgiveness is freely offered. Lord, I pray that they would hear these truths and they too would respond. And Lord, that there would be much rejoicing in heaven as one is restored back to the Father. Father, we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.